Um, this is Maggie. I'm going to open the presentation and then later on Valley is going to talk about uh, specifically how um, public charge relates to the COVID-19 crisis. And so just bear with me while I share my screen here. All right. So. Okay. So today we're just going to talk about the basics of the uh, public charge rule that was implemented on February 24th of this year. It made a lot of changes to the older public charge rule and a lot of um, people in the immigrant community are you know, understandably very concerned about how the rule will affect them and their immigration options in the future. This is a complicated rule. There's a lot of nuance to it, a lot of layers, and it really, at the end of the day, requires a one-on-one -on -one analysis of each client's individual circumstances. But today we hope to share with you some basic principles of the rule and to discuss some of the most important aspects of the rule that are likely to come up in your practice. And so today we're going to discuss first a threshold question of what categories of immigrants are affected by the public charge rule and what groups of people are not affected. There's a common conception that if you're an immigrant, the public charge rule applies to you, and that's simply not the case. And then a second question is what are the different factors being evaluated by USCIS um, in the public charge rule if it does in fact apply to your client? So we're going to look at those factors briefly and discuss you know, the different weights given to different factors under the rule. And the third um, aspect that we're going to discuss, and this is going to be sprinkled throughout the presentation, is you know, how can attorneys best position clients going forward? You know, it's a complicated test. There are a lot of factors. And you know, what can you do uh, to help your client make the right decision about whether to go forward with um, their case if they are indeed subject to the public charge rule. And then finally, Valley is going to discuss the COVID-19 crisis. You know, many um, of our clients are, you know, losing jobs and they may have needed to get on various benefits such as emergency rental assistance um, or cash assistance for their children or SNAP for their U.S. citizen children. And how may this crisis affect immigrants who are subject to the public charge rule? So who is subject to the new public charge rule? And at the beginning, if you look at the bottom of the slide, I just wanna issue a caveat that this presentation only covers the public charge rule from the Department of Homeland Security that was implemented on February 24th. Um, this applies to people who are applying for um, green cards from within the U.S. Um, and people who are not in removal proceedings. If someone's applying uh, for adjustment of status um, to get a green card outside of the U.S., um, they have to go through consular processing. And this is governed by the Department of State public charge rule. And the Department of State rule also applies to people who are applying for visas at a consulate outside of the U.S. Now, the Department of State rule is substantially similar to the new DHS rule. There are some differences though, so we don't want this presentation to speak for that, for the Department of State rule. So if you're dealing with someone who's outside of the U.S. trying to um, get in, get a legal status here from outside, then you'll want to consult 
the separate State Department rule. Uh, similarly, if someone's in removal proceedings and they're not considered um, an arriving alien, and that's a legal term, then they are governed by the Department of Justice, which actually does not have um, a rule for inadmissibility or deportability at this moment. They have um, policies and precedent that they are, um, you know, that still govern from the past. And um, there are rumors that they're going to issue a rule um, addressing public charge in the future, but it hasn't happened yet. And so if you have someone in removal proceedings, it's actually, in fact, in some cases, a little more lenient to apply in court right now versus um, being subject to the new DHS rule. So, you know, going back to who is subject to the rule. Um, so the new DHS rule applies to certain applicants seeking admission into the United States or seeking adjustment to lawful permanent resident status. Now, um, the most common scenario that you will probably encounter um, are people who are applying for family-based I-485 applications. And so these are green card applications that um, are based on someone's relationship to a U.S. citizen or permanent resident family member. So for example, if you're an immigrant whose husband's a U.S. citizen, then you may be able to submit a family petition and then get a green card through that relationship. Now, these um, types of applications are subject to the uh, public charge rule. Um, some employment-based I-485 applications are also subject to the rule, though it's less of an issue in these cases. It tends to be more of a problem with the family-based um, cases. And additionally, um, people who are seeking to enter the U.S., for example, someone on a B-2 visitor visa who's coming into the U.S. at the airport or a student visa coming into the U.S. at the airport um, seeking admission into the country are also subject to the rule. And what we're going to be talking about most often in this presentation are the family-based applications. A second category of um, applicants that are subject to the rule are people who are seeking to extend certain non-immigrant visas. Like, for example, if someone's on a B-2 visitor visa and they want to apply to get six more months, or some uh, applicants who are trying to change to another non-immigrant status, for example, a student a person on a student visa trying to uh, get an employment visa would be subject to the public charge rule. So an equally important question, though, is who is not subject to the public charge rule? And that's many groups of people, actually. One of um, a common question we get um, is from people who want to apply for citizenship who are ready to naturalize. And they ask, oh, I'm on a cash assistance or SNAP, is this going to hurt my chances for citizenship? And the answer is no. Uh, public charge does not factor into the naturalization process, and it should not be a factor in determining whether someone can become a citizen or not. Now, you may have heard stories um, of clients who go to their citizenship interview, and then um, the officer starts talking about public charge. Um, well, what is often happening in those situations is they're going, the officer's going back to the time when they adjusted status and got their green card, and they are questioning whether they were actually a public charge at that time years ago. And usually there's an issue where 
the officer is um, suspecting fraud or misrepresentation at the time of the green card application. That's a different issue. So if you're actually at the citizenship stage and you're on benefits or you know you have a low income, that should not factor into whether you can get citizenship. And that's an important point that you know we don't want to see people not applying for citizenship because they're afraid um, of public charge. Another category of, of um, people who are not subject to the rule are lawful permanent residents, you know, who already have a green card. There is an exception. Um, those uh, green card holders who leave the country for more than 180 days can be subject um, to a new consideration of their inadmissibility when they come back in, like at the airport, for example. And public charge is one of the inadmissibility factors that can come into play. And so the officer at the airport can question someone about public charge. And if they find that they are likely to be a public charge, they can get placed into removal proceedings, for example. And so if you have a um, green card holder who does travel a lot, you do want to advise them about taking really long trips for more than six months out of the country. But otherwise, they are um, not subject to this rule. And this includes conditional uh, LPRs who are seeking to remove conditions on their green card, often called two-year green cards for people who, who got married and got temporary green cards. And another huge category of people who um, are exempt are people who are applying for green cards in certain exempt categories. We have a list on the next slide, um, so bear with me and we'll get to that. And then, you know, the also applicants for statuses to which public charge doesn't apply as a factor in the first place. Now, these include people who are applying for temporary protected status. Now, you can't get a green card from if you have, you know, just from having TPS, but, you know, the actual application process for TPS does not implicate public charge. So if people are worried about that, then um, you know, then you can advise them. And this mostly applies to renewing TPS at this point. Um, DACA as well, public charge doesn't factor into it. Applying for a U or T visa or applying for asylum. Deferred action, including you know, medical deferred action. Withholding of removal and cancellation of removal. Those are in the immigration court, so they're under the Department of Justice, but public charge doesn't apply. Uh, and doesn't determine whether you can get um, this form of relief or not. And parole status is another status uh, where public charge doesn't apply. If someone is actually applying for a green card, um, there are a lot of exemptions for public charge. So for example, if someone has asylee or refugee status, or U or T visa status, and they're applying for a green card based on those statuses, they are exempt from any, kind of, any consideration of public charge. Um, Violence Against Women Act or VAWA self-petitioners as well, and we're going to discuss how U and T and VAWA petitioners are a little special in just a minute. There's a few more protections for them as well. Um, special immigrant juveniles are exempt when they're adjusting their status um, based on their SIG status. Um, and then there's a whole host of other um, categories that can get quite technical. Um, I included the citation to the regulation so you can go look at all of those, but there's a lot of special statute specific or country specific adjustments for people um, to get their green cards. For, for example, Afghani or Iraqi interpreters who helped the US during the uh, wars in the 2000s can 
uh, sometimes get their, uh, sometimes adjust status in certain Cubans and Haitians as a result of different statute and NACARA applicants, they're not subject to the uh, public charge analysis. So for a complete list, see the citation. And if you, if someone comes in with, and they've had some kind of legal status at some point in the past, it's always a good idea to check this list to see if they're on it. Some of them can be very, um, apply only to a narrow group of people. So there are some special considerations for people who have U and T visas um, in the rule. So if you have a U or T uh, non-immigrant status that's valid, or you're a T applicant, a T visa applicant with a prima facie case, you're actually exempt from the pub public charge rule even if you adjust status through another pathway. Um, just to give you an example, Jane just received a U visa, and if you get a U visa, you can't apply to adjust your status to a permanent resident for three years. However, she recently got married to a U.S. citizen, and she wants to apply for a green card faster through her spouse. Is she subject to the public charge and admissibility ground? No. Um, because she has a U visa, it's valid. She's actually in a special situation where she can apply to get a green card through another, through a family-based petition, and the public charge rule won't apply to her because she has a U visa. Um, and so this is just something to keep in mind. And VAWA self-petitioners and certain what they call qualified alien victims, which is a, a legal term, are arguably also um, super exempt. Um, MLRI, Mass Law Reform, actually has a lot of, you know, some good materials about these super exemptions as well. So I would encourage you to check those out. Um, they helped me understand the issue as well. But for VAWA self-petitioners and certain qualified alien victims, there's strong language in the new rule that suggests that uh, these categories are also super exempt. So for example, if they, if a VAWA self-petitioner decides to adjust status through a family member, that they can do so without being subject to the public charge rule, even though they're not um, adjusting their status through VAWA. And there's also a group of um, qualified aliens who may be um, super exempt as well. And this is listed, and I've provided the statute in 8 U.S.C. 1641C, and this includes VAWA self-petitioners, VAWA cancellation or removal applicants, um, people with a pending or approved application for a T visa, and several other groups of victims. So if you come across one of these situations, you know, you want to make this argument. You want to argue that they're not subject to the public charge rule, even though it's a little ambiguous in some of the forms and the instructions. Um, for the public charge form that USCIS has issued, don't make it clear that this is the case, but we do have a, a good argument that it is. Let's look now at the actual statute, the statutory source for the language for public charge. So what does the statute say? Um, and any alien who in the opinion of the consular officer at the time of application for a visa, that's the Department of State rule, or in the opinion of the Attorney General at the time of application for admission or adjustment of status, and that's the DHS rule that we're dealing with, is likely at any time to become a public charge is inadmissible. So the key language there is, is the applicant likely at any time to become a public charge? 
And the new rule has interpreted this question in, in the following way. Is the applicant, quote, more likely than not at any time in the future to become a public charge? So taking that fundamental question, um, we want to note the language. You know, it's perspective. It's a forward-looking test. It's not asking, are you a public charge in this, uh, in this moment? It's asking, are you more likely than not at any time in the future to become one? So this is a, a key issue that sometimes we can lose track of when we're focused on whether someone's getting a benefit right now or whether they're not getting a benefit. Um, the officer is going to evaluate all the circumstances to, to see how the applicant's um, situation is going to be in the future. So what is the actual definition of public charge though? Because we've seen our question is whether you're more likely than not to be a public charge, so what is it? I put the um, prior definition and the new definition up on the slides so you can see what the older rule looked like and what the new definition looks like. So under the older rule, before February 24th, a public charge is someone likely to become primarily dependent on the government for subsistence. This is a much more lenient standard in practice than the new rule. It was mostly interpreted as um, people who are receiving cash assistance for income maintenance, and this would include TAFDC or SSI, for example, um, or a state cash assistance for general income maintenance, and additionally, long-term institutionalization at government expense. And um, it's lenient in another sense as well in that there, you know, certain factors could be overcome simply by showing that you have a sponsor who could submit an affidavit of support showing that they make a minimum income of 125% of the federal poverty level. Now that's still required, that affidavit of support, but um, it's not as um, critical, I mean, it's not as um, given as much weight as it was in the past in general. There's a lot of other factors now that are coming into play. Um, so the new definition, um, a public charge is very technical. It, it's a person who receives one or more public benefits for more than 12 months in the aggregate within any 36-month period, such that receipt of two benefits in one month counts as two months. So just to summarize, if, you, if you're confused by this, don't worry. Um, this is just one factor in the analysis in reality. Um, but for example, if someone is on um, TAFDC cash assistance for uh, seven months and they are also on SSI for seven months, seven months of SSI plus seven months of TAFDC is 14 months. Even if it's you're receiving them in the same month, they count separately. So that would be 14 months of benefits and if they happened within the last 36 months, then yes, you do meet this definition of um, public charge. Now I use examples of cash benefits. As we'll see in a minute, the definition of public benefit has been expanded considerably to include non-cash in-kind benefits, which I'm listing in the next few slides. But just keep in mind that the test is perspective. They're looking to see whether you're going to, you're likely to meet this definition in the future. So I just wanted to point out, um, because sometimes in your practice you may see clients who are coming in who've already filed uh, 485 uh, applications. And the timing matters uh, in determining whether they are subject to the new rule or not. Um, 
So someone filed in January of 2020 their 485 green card application. Um, does the new public charge rule apply? No, it actually doesn't, as long as they were in the U.S. at the time. So all um, I-485 applications filed with DHS before February 24th are subject to the old rule, which is more lenient. So this will help a lot of people who have already filed and who are, are worried because they are on certain benefits or they have a lower income. And in terms of what benefits count under the uh, definition that we just read, so the benefits from the old public charge test, particularly, I mean, the cash assistance for income maintenance still counts. They actually removed um, the long-term institutionalization from the rule, but they say that um, these, the receipt of, of this cash assistance counts as long-term institutionalization. So if, if someone's on TAFDC or SSI or the state uh, cash assistance EAEDC, that counts and it always has. Um, but what's new in the definition are all of these new non-cash in-kind benefits, uh, including SNAP uh, or food stamps, non-emergency Medicaid. Um, there are some uh, exceptions to that, which we're going to discuss in just a minute. Um, Section 8 housing uh, choice voucher or, or the project-based public housing does count as a public benefit under the rule and also federal public housing under Section 9 counts as well. So this is a big change because in the past public housing, SNAP, non-emergency Medicaid did not count towards uh, the public charge rule. But if you are, if your client is receiving non-cash assistance, um, it only counts if it occurred after February 24th of this year. So those are the uh, enumerated benefits that do count under the rule, but there are a whole host of benefits that are not on the list and don't count. And so we're going to look at those in just um, a minute. Let me actually first address um, a common question. So if your client is receiving one of these benefits here, like SNAP or non-emergency Medicaid, um, does it always, uh, you know, doom them, or, you know, for example? And the answer is no. Um, first, it doesn't, you know, necessarily eliminate their application because it's only one factor in the analysis. You know, use of benefits isn't the only thing that counts, and you may be able to overcome your problem with um, other positive factors that you can show, and we'll discuss those in a minute. But even if you are receiving a defined benefit, some of the benefits don't actually count, even if they're on that list. So I'm gonna go through those briefly. One of them is non-cash benefits received before February 24th, as we've already said. Another is Medicaid benefits received by a pregnant woman or child under 21. A third are cash or non-cash benefits received while in an exempt category. This is a huge number. There are a lot of exemptions as we saw. Um, so for example, an asylee who received cash assistance in the form of TAFDC while they were an asylee, those benefits uh, do not count towards the public charge analysis. If you have a client in the military or your client is a spouse or child of a, an active duty military member, then their cash or non-cash benefits don't qualify. And finally, a, a cash or non-cash benefits received by certain children of U.S. citizens who are in the process of acquiring citizenship or who are in the process of being adopted are also exempt, um, even when they receive one of the listed benefits. 
A very common question we get are is, uh, you know, I have uh, U.S. citizen children and they're getting SNAP, even though I'm not eligible for SNAP. Um, is this going to count against me if they're on these benefits? So the answer is no. It's very clear in the rule that benefits for relatives do not count. Only benefits that the applicant receives in their own name. And if the officer at an interview seems to be um, counting the relatives' um, benefits, then that's improper. Now, most of undocumented um, immigrants are not eligible for the uh, benefits that are on the enumerated list. There are some exceptions, but most often those exceptions are in one of the exempted categories, such as VAWA self-petitioners. So most applicants don't actually have a benefit in their own name that would count against them. But there are other factors that will count against them, such as a low income, which we'll discuss. But this is a, such a common question, we just really wanted to point it out to people that if your child is getting something, and you're the one that's applying for immigration relief, then that child's benefit doesn't count. Um, there are also a lot of benefits that are not on the list and they don't count at all um, towards public charge. Some common ones are unemployment insurance or workers' compensation, um, social security. Um, here's the list, I won't read all of them, but some of these uh, benefits are things that undocumented immigrants can't access, such as um, emergency shelter um, or earned income tax credit if they have a um, I-10 number or social security number, uh, a state public housing. Um, one important um, benefit that does not count is state-funded Medicaid. Only federal Medicaid is on the list of enumerated benefits. So if, if you have a, a client who's on MassHealth Limited, that's entirely state funded. There's an exception for that. That's not going to count against your client for public charge purposes. WIC is also another one that doesn't count um, in public school and school-based benefits such as free school lunch and any kind of disaster relief as well. Um, this is just, an, we will skip this because um, this is just reiterating if you're on MassHealth Limited um, or emergency Medicaid or the pregnant women and children um, Medicaid, that uh, doesn't count as a benefit. So we've discussed what the public charge is defined as, but the question, remember, is, is the applicant more likely than not at any time in the future to be a public charge? you know, AKA public charge is someone who receives one or more designated public benefits for more than 12 months in the aggregate within any 36 month period. So that's a mouthful. But what test is the officer looking at to determine whether someone's more likely than not to be um, a public charge in the future? Well, most of our clients are not even on any of those listed benefits. Um, but what the officer is going to look at is far broader than benefits. They're going to look at the totality of the circumstances. And on the right-hand side of this uh, screen, you can see some of the factors. Um, age, family status, um, health, disability status, assets, resources, financial status. We're gonna discuss these one by one. Education and skills, expected status, you know, what status are you applying for? How long are you seeking admission? 
and then whether you have an affidavit of support. So this has always been uh, the test. Um, what's different about this rule is that they have issued a lot more comprehensive guidance or mandates to the officer about what they can consider. Um, they've established minimum factors to consider, minimum positive and negative factors, but also heavily weighted positive and negative factors. We're just about to go through some of those. Um, it's important to emphasize that no one factor alone should make someone a public charge, and they say that in the rule. They have to consider the totality of the circumstances, so you do have the opportunity to counterbalance negative factors with positive factors. So what are some of the heavily weighted positive and negative factors in the new rule? So a heavily weighted positive factor um, is, for example, if your household income is above 250% of the federal poverty guidelines or the client's income is above this level. And this is rare, obviously, for the clients that we represent. Um, we have income limits um, in our office, but um, it's, it's favoring, obviously, wealthy clients. Another heavily weighted positive factor is, um, are you enrolled in private health insurance without um, Affordable Care Act tax credits? Now, as you can see, this is very hard for low-income clients to um, meet, but they still may have some positive factors as well. Now, heavily, that are not heavily weighted. And so some heavily weighted negative factors are, um, if you're authorized to work, but you're unemployed, um, there's an exception um, for students. If you've received public benefits for more than 12 months and 36 month period, um, this is the definition of public charge we just discussed. This is a heavily weighted negative factor, but it's not this positive. And also if you're diagnosed with a medical condition and you have low income and assets and you don't have uh, private health insurance, that's um, also a highly negative factor. And if you, previously been found inadmissible as a public charge, that also counts um, heavily against you. But in addition to the heavily weighted factors, there are also just a regular garden variety, so to speak, positive and negative factors. So age is one factor they're going to consider. In short, um, the main positive factor here is if you're in between the ages of 18 and 61. So why 61? Um, because the early retirement age for Social Security is 62. So they consider it a positive factor if you are of a prime working age, as they call it, between 18 and 61. If you're under 18 or over 61, um, it's not necessarily a, a negative factor, but they're going to look at whether um, it impacts your ability to work, and they'll look at, you know, you know for example, if you're a child, what parental support, what support by your guardian do you have? In addition to age, health is another factor that has really, um, is now receiving a heightened analysis under the new rule. Um, they really emphasize it and it's discussed heavily. Um, some of the factors that go into um, evaluating your health are, um, does the client have a medical condition that requires extensive medical treatment or institutionalization? Is the health condition going to affect the, their ability to provide for themselves or their ability to attend school or have a job? Are they likely to accumulate substantial future medical expenses? And if they are, um, do they have private health insurance that would cover the needed medical treatment? So these are all um, 
factors that can really affect some applicants now under public charge. Household status or family status. This is simply, um, you know, household size. How many dependents do you have? If you have a lot of dependents, you're expected to have a higher income and they're going to look to see not just if you can care for yourself, but can you financially support your dependents. Assets, resources, and financial status is a huge um, factor in this analysis, perhaps the most important one. They're going to look at the applicant's household income and assets. One positive factor is if you have a household income of at least 125% of the federal poverty guidelines, um, the affidavit of support actually has to meet this um, requirement or your application can be rejected or denied. If your income level if you don't meet this uh, standard, you have to show sufficient assets to overcome the income gap. And there's a calculation that you have to do to determine whether you have enough assets. They're gonna look as well at whether you have enough income and assets to cover any um, medical costs that are reasonably foreseeable. And so this is health coming in again, medical conditions coming in um, to the analysis. And additionally, um, in addition to the heavily weighted negative factor that we discussed with benefits, you know, receiving more than 12 months of benefits, um, they also are um, entitled to look at whether you have applied or even, you know, been certified to receive or been approved for one or more public benefits after February 24th, um, if it's a non-cash benefit or a cash benefit before February 24th. Now this is just a, an ordinary factor with an ordinary weight um, that they consider versus heavily weighted. But it's not really clear at this point how they're going to you know, weigh these different factors and how they're gonna weigh heavily weighted um, factors you know, as opposed to regularly weighted factors. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty there. So this just to keep in mind if, if applicants have applied for a benefit, then it can factor into the totality of circumstances analysis. Um, in addition to your income and your assets and your benefits, your financial liabilities also count. You know, do you have a lot of credit card debt? You have a, a mortgage. They also want to see your credit score if you have one. You have to submit a copy of it. If it's bad, that's a negative factor. If it's good, it's a positive factor. If you don't have a credit score, you have to explain why you don't have it. Um, it doesn't necessarily count as a negative factor, um, but you do need to show some kind of evidence that you make timely payments on your bills and that you know, you're responsible financially. Education and skills. Um, this is just a citation to the uh, regulation. Um, the factors here are employment history. How many jobs have you had? Do you change jobs frequently? Um, do you stay with a job only a short time? Um, high school diploma or advanced degree is a positive factor if, some, if the client has one. If the client has occupational skills or licenses that would make them highly employable, that uh, counts in their favor. English proficiency is something that's really that's being emphasized now. Um, it is, uh, you know, a positive factor if you have English proficiency. And if you don't have English proficiency, that you know, doesn't help you. It's not necessarily, you know, obviously a dispositive factor. But yeah, it, it's going to affect a lot of our clients. Um, 
whether an applicant is a primary caregiver is also factoring into the analysis. The um, DHS has recognized in the rule that some people are caring for uh, relatives and may not be working as a result. And they did say that they will take into account the value of this, you know, caregiving and not necessarily penalize people for not um, working, but it's unclear how this is going to be analyzed when at the end of the day. So briefly, um, prospective immigration status, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this. This is just um, uh, a question of what you're applying for. They are allowed to take into account um, what type of status you're seeking. And they do this, it seems, to determine whether you're going to be eligible for benefits or not. Um, so if you're applying for a temporary status where you're not eligible for benefits, that might count in your favor. If you're applying for a green card, under their reasoning, you may be eligible for benefits as a green card holder. So that might count against you, the very act of applying for a green card. Now, there's nothing you can do about that, right, if you're applying for a green card. So that's just one factor, and we're not necessarily sure how they're going to weigh it. Um, but they're also looking to see how long you're going to be staying, or, you know, is it temporary, is it permanent? If it's permanent, are you more likely to be um, using government assistance? So that's, that's one factor. And then the affidavit of support, which we're not going to go into in the interest of time, but this is something that's been required for a long time um, if you're applying for a family-based petition and certain other uh, green card applications. Um, but what's different about it that I hope you take away from this is that it's just one factor of many now. It used to be more important under the old rule. It could excuse a lot of negative factors oftentimes in practice, while now it's, it's necessary to show it, but it's not sufficient. Um, and so they're gonna look at the sponsor's income and assets, their relationship to the applicant, whether the sponsor has other obligations to other immigrants um, by filing affidavits of support in the past. Um, I think uh, briefly, um, we'll go through this hypothetical um, just to put everything together that we've been discussing um, in a real client scenario. So we have a client named Grace who wants to apply for a green card through her husband. She's 36 years old. Um, she speaks Haitian Creole uh, fluently. She has limited English. She worked for five years as a hostess at a restaurant in Boston until she lost her job in March. She has you know, two US citizen children under the age of five. Her husband worked until March as an assistant manager at a restaurant. Their household income pre-COVID was 140% of the federal poverty level. Her husband had private health insurance, which covered the whole family until he lost his job. And Grace completed high school in Haiti, and she's interested in becoming a certified home health aide. So how will she fare under the totality of the circumstances analysis? Let's see. So she has some positive factors here. Um, her age um, is a positive factor. She has um, she had private health insurance before COVID uh, hit, and Valley's going to talk a little bit about um, how to factor in the COVID crisis. She had a steady employment history as well before you know the COVID crisis, um, and she had a high school diploma. And she had household income above 125% of the 
uh, federal poverty guidelines. She also has some potential negative factors. Uh, she doesn't speak English proficiently. She's in a relatively unskilled job. Um, she has a low income, assuming she doesn't get her job back um, once COVID-19 is over or is, you know, easing up. And so what um, she really needs to do, obviously, and this um, is not a cop-out, it's just the reality of it, is she needs to talk to an attorney to do a consult and go through all of the factors to just evaluate the totality of the circumstances and advise her whether she should go forward right now with her green card application. There are many people who right now may be better off waiting until, for example, the election to see what happens there, to see if, if there's gonna be a more positive environment going forward, and perhaps hopefully knock on wood some changes to the um, public charge rule that are more favorable to low income applicants. And very briefly before we get to Valley's uh, discussion of COVID, I just wanted to point out that there is a, a new form that you have to file um, if you are subject to the public charge rule and you're applying for um, a 485 application or for, you know, for a green card. Um, this is called the I-944 Declaration of Self-Sufficiency. It's an extensive form. It's about 18 pages long, I believe. Um, it must be submitted if you're filing your application after February 24th unless you're exempted by statute or regulation. The exemptions are, um, most of the groups that we've already talked about as being exempt from the public charge rule are also exempt from submitting this form. You can go to the instructions for the I-944 and there is a list of those groups who are exempt, so you'll wanna check that out. Um, it might also be requested if someone's applying for a visa extension or a change of status. I'm not going to go through all of these um, categories here, but you do have to submit a, a fairly extensive um, collection of evidence for this form um, to show that you have financial status and income, to show what your financial liabilities are, to establish your health isn't going to be a factor in the public charge analysis. And if you're on any public benefits, you have to provide documentation of which benefits and these are only the benefits that you're required to disclose and these are the benefits on the list or you know the benefits that are asked about in the form if for example your clients on WIC are receiving WIC for their children that's not a listed benefit so you don't want to provide more information than you need to um, to the government because you don't want them taking into account factors that they're not supposed to such as benefits that are not part of the public charge analysis um, but, you know, in, in general, like you have to submit IRS transcripts, child support agreements, evidence of your assets. Um, if you have diplomas, if you have English proficiency, you want to submit some kind of proof of that. If you have it for your client, test results, transcripts, etc. If I would encourage you to go to the instructions for the I-944 and they do explain in some depth what they're looking for specifically. They even, you know, they want your credit score. So if your client's got a credit score, you can get that from the credit bureaus as well. Um, so I'm gonna turn this over to Valley to discuss COVID-19 and then we're gonna open it up for questions. Okay, and in the interest of time, I'm gonna be brief. Um, can you hear me? So there are many questions about the COVID crisis and one of the most important ones has to do with whether or not it's okay to get health uh, care for COVID-related issues. 
And the answer is yes. USCIS announced that it would not consider testing, treatment, or preventive care related to COVID-19 as part of a public charge determination, even if paid for by Medicaid. So clients should be encouraged to get tested as needed and certainly to get treated for COVID um, as needed. The COVID, next, yeah. the COVID crisis was declared an emergency under the Federal Stafford Act. Relief under the Stafford Act is explicitly exempt from the public charge rule. Congress also passed additional disaster relief acts, including the CARES Act to provide relief and stimulate the economy. And in general, and you can look at uh, chapter 10, uh, section A2 of the USCIS policy manual for a little bit more information. But in general, emergency disaster relief is not considered for purposes of public charge. And um, our analysis is that that's also the case for relief that's provided under the CARES Act. But even um, if not disaster relief, even if the relief under the CARES Act is not considered disaster relief, which we think it is, um, most of the relief is likely not to implicate public charge issues. For example, the stimulus checks, and we, we're getting a lot of questions about whether it was okay for people to cash their stimulus checks, um, that relief is structured as automatically advanced tax credits and tax credits are not considered for purposes of the public charge rule. So if anyone hasn't already uh, cashed their stimulus checks, they certainly can do that. Uh, the same is true for enhanced unemployment insurance. Unemployment benefits are considered an earned benefit and they are not considered for purposes of making a public charge determination. There is no clear guidance on partially forgivable loans to small businesses and paycheck protection, uh, but these are for the purpose of protecting small businesses and stimulating the economy and should be distinguishable from benefits uh, to individuals. State cash benefits are, unless for general income maintenance, which Maggie talked about, uh, will not likely be uh, public charge concerns. Finally, uh, even public benefits that do count under the rule, if used because of job loss directly related to the COVID crisis, may not count against an individual. Uh, USCIS has stated, and I'm quoting, if the alien is prevented from working or attending school and must rely on public benefits for the duration of the COVID-19 outbreak and recovery phase, the alien can provide an explanation and relevant supporting documentation. To the extent relevant and credible, USCIS will take all such evidence into consideration in the totality of the alien circumstances." End of quote. So of course, uh, documentation uh, is very important if that's the case. Um, when analyzing the totality of a client's circumstances, uh, we may advise the client that they're better off waiting until the COVID crisis is over to apply for family-based green cards. Uh, maybe they will uh, re be, regain their employment, but in any case, we want them to be in the best possible, strongest position uh, when they apply. So um, 
is okay we're on the wrap-up okay so the wrap-up this may it's a complicated analysis and we hope we haven't confused you too much but um the takeaways are uh, not all benefits count in the public charge determination including many covid related benefits the public charge rule does not apply to every status receipt of a benefit is not the only factor that dhs will consider and as maggie talked a lot about the test is prospective if benefits help clients regain income now regain employment and health uh, that ultimately may boost their future green card application um, and one of the takeaways is that a lot of these cases require a case-by-case -case analysis maggie um, yes thanks valley so we just put our contact information up as well um, if you know you have clients who may um, you know, meet our income guidelines um, who need a consultation about um, an issue related to public charge you can contact us or have them call our number and i think that's all that we have for the presentation i know it's a lot and so people may have questions um, that we're happy to answer so there's there's some questions in the q a let me just stop my screen share. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so there's a question um, about receiving TAFDC and SSI. Um, this person, um, said, Patricia says an individual cannot receive both for themselves, only one or the other. So actually, um, to clarify then, if, if they, you know, since I'm not a, a benefits expert, I was just using that as an example because those were the ones listed on the slide. But if you're not technically allowed to receive both of those in your own name, then um, yes, you, let's just use a different example. For example, if they receive SNAP and TAFDC, so seven months of SNAP and seven months of SSI, that would be, um, or seven months of TAFDC, that would be 14 months, and then um, that would count under the definition of public charge as you know, more than 12 months. So the, uh, the second part of the question was that if um, a disabled mom gets SSI and also gets TAFDC for her child, would both benefits count against her, those of her own? Um, and those of her child, and the answer to that is no. If it's for her child, it doesn't count. Only benefits in the individual's name would count uh, in the public charge analysis. And um, another question is if, if you applied for a benefit, but the state denied you because you were not an eligible alien, is the um, mere fact of applying a negative. Many immigrants are confused about what they are eligible for, or for example, a helping agency might think an immigrant mom and US citizen child can both apply for TAFDC or SNAP, but only the child is eligible and the mom is denied. Is the fact of her signing that application for both, perhaps on bad advice from an organization, problematic if she was ultimately denied? 
So those are good questions, actually. Um, so as we discussed, um, a heavily weighted negative factor is if you're receiving more than 12 months of a um, listed benefit and each benefit counts as a separate month. So that is a very strong adverse factor. But in addition, simply having applied um, for a benefit or having been certified to receive one is actually a negative factor, just an ordinary negative factor that they can take into consideration within the totality of the circumstances. So if they did apply for TFDC or SNAP, um, then that would be an application. Though if they're not actually um, eligible for it and they applied an error and it was really considered to be an application for the child, I think that you have an, an argument that that doesn't qualify as um, an application for a benefit um, because in reality that it wasn't an application that um, had any um, chance of being approved is what they're looking for. I mean, in reality, if you look at the nuances of the language and the rule is, you know, are you someone who's like certified to receive or are you somebody who's applying and indicating that you, you know, could be on the benefit? So I think, you know, that's kind of an open question. Honestly, I, I don't have a hundred percent answer to that, but I would think there's a good argument that um, that's not an application. Um, Someone wanted us to talk about filing the I-944 in documents. Um, so I covered that very briefly. We just didn't have time to go into the nitty gritty of it, of every aspect of it, but it is something that is very time consuming. And I know probably many of you may have already worked on one of the forms. You do have to focus on getting a lot of documentation um, to cover all the factors that we discussed, for example, income, um, finding tax transcripts for people in your household whose income counts towards the analysis, um, showing all of your financial liabilities, um, and also if you have a chronic health condition that may impact you, you might have to get letters or medical records from your treating provider explaining how this condition is not going to um, negatively impact your ability to support yourself. So there's a lot that goes into it and, and I would encourage people to read the instructions um, as well, just to make sure that your client has everything they need. And I would also advise people, don't submit something that you don't need to submit that's not gonna help you. You're not required to show every state benefit that a um, applicant has received, you know, food as assistance from the state or state public housing or all those benefits that are on the list of benefits that don't count. You don't have to submit that stuff, so just check the list. If it's not on the defined list of benefits um, and you're not required to submit it in the instructions, then don't, you know, because you don't want the officer to hold it against your client, even if they're acting improperly. Anything else? Okay, well, um, thank you all very much. I know there's a lot here, um, but we're all, you know, learning 
step-by-step step how to get through these applications and how to evaluate client circumstances and you know with the very difficult rule that we're dealing with. Okay, thank you for participating.